read Acts chapter 4, verses 23 through 31. God's holy word. Acts chapter 4 verse 23. And being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David has said, Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that With all boldness, they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Let us pray together. Holy Father, we thank you once again that you've glorified your, your servant, Jesus. Even as men sought to kill him, we thank you that that the church was equipped and emboldened with this truth, that you held on to them even as they hold on, held on to you, and that from here the church went on to spread like wildfire through the whole world, and it's reached even us. We ask you as we learn about the beginnings of the church in this way, the New Testament church, that you would continue to instruct us, and God, that you would embolden us along with them, and in the same way. So we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've seen uh, the popular reception of Peter's preaching in Acts chapter 2 and, uh, and the beginning of chapter 3. It would seem things were going well, but, well, we come to chapter 4 and we, th- we see things were not, well, they weren't quite so easy. The church was beginning to face persecution, opposition. These apostles, Peter and John, were imprisoned uh, briefly for their preaching of the gospel. And this was only the beginning of their difficulties. And we've already seen what they began to do. In essence, the answer uh, to that is, what did they do? Well, they defied the authorities. That's number one. But beyond that, as we begin to broaden out this question that Luke seems to have such an interest in answering, namely, what's the church to do in the face of opposition? You see, there's the popular appeal in the earlier chapters. Now in chapters 4 and 5 and beyond, there's the whole question of opposition. What's the church to do? And, uh, and, and, and Luke continues to answer the question by what we see them doing in these verses. One of the things that we see, and this is the first thing we see, is that Peter and John go to the others. Uh, so I, I suppose the first answer to that question is the church is under fire She's facing tremendous opposition. Remember, uh, these same authorities were responsible for crucifying their Lord. It it must have occurred to them that the same fate would be uh, would fall upon them almost immediately. 
And so understanding the pressures that they faced, we see that the church is gathered. They went to their own. The church under fire is a church that ought to gather. Indeed, when we recognize that, again, you see this, the first thing we, we read, and being let go, they went to their own. The word companions is supplied, but I, I, I supplied. I prefer just they went to their own. The church is gathered. We get a sense here of why the writer to the Hebrews says what he does throughout the epistle. Remember, he was writing to Christians uh, who, like this, were under fire. They were under siege. Uh, their livelihood and even their own lives were in jeopardy. And, and, and what he consistently is exhorting his hearers throughout that epistle is that you need to hold on. You need to hold fast to the end. You're going, well, you're going to face many trials. They've only just begun. And the reality is the church will always be in such a state in this world. But in doing so, in seeking to hold on to your profession, you've got to be sure to gather. You can't uh, try to hold on to Jesus quietly in your home by yourself. You see, that's always the temptation. That's what men are saying even today. At least, well, they were saying that at one point very recently, weren't they? No, the church has got to gather. That is the essence of our position as Christians. And the reality that we have to face is our own weakness. We realize that in the face of opposition and in the face of weakness that left to ourselves, well, the reality is we're not strong enough to face such pressures. We need the strength. Uh, we need the encouragement of our brothers. And so that was the instinct of the apostles here. They were under pressure. They were told to stop and immediately they go to their own. A church that is under fire is a church that must be sure to gather. The question is, will she pay the price? If the authorities tell us, you know, you've got to stop. You can't be gathering. And we gather anyways. Will we pay the price? Almost certainly. Let us be clear about that. That's another lesson that we learn here. And yet, what, and we'll see that going on. They pay a dear price. And yet we ask ourselves, what is the alternative? Where else will we go, as Peter says in the Gospels? Jesus has the words of eternal life. And he is ever found in the company of his disciples. In other words, I'll say again, you can't hold on to Jesus by yourself. If you try to do that in the face of trials, in the face of opposition, you will almost certainly uh, fall away. You won't be able to do it. No, under pressure, we must go to our own. That's the first thing. When the church is threatened, she must gather. But that's not the only thing. We see what they did as they gathered. They prayed. And we have here, we've seen the preaching of the apostles, but here we see the prayer of the apostles. And I'm so thankful for this. Uh, I, I love to read of the preaching of the apostles, but I'm also interested to read of their prayers. It's helpful to see what their well, what their worship was like while they were under fire and while they were gathering. And the first thing I would notice about their prayer, and this stands out to me very strongly, I wonder if it does to you, is that as they come back to their own, there is a total absence of self-satisfaction. In other words, they didn't come back as heroes in order to be congratulated by their brothers. I think, that, I think that's always the temptation when anyone takes a kind of heroic stand, and surely they had done that. You know, they might have come back to people patting them on the back or expected such a thing. But that isn't what we find. We find men who are emptied of self. Men who were prepared uh, to die for the gospel, as Peter and John later would. Uh, we find men who were servants and slaves of Jesus Christ. And in the face of the opposition, we see nothing of pride, nothing of self-satisfaction, 
nothing of a self-congratulatory spirit. We find a spirit of prayer. We find a spirit of humility. We find that the church under fire as she gathers must be a church that is praying. We notice they did so with one accord. Now that's, I, I often say that Luke is given to refrains. He, there are certain phrases he likes to use. And this is one we've already seen many times with one accord. As they prayed, they were united in spirit. It was a kind of corporate prayer, much like our prayers. When I, when I pray uh, in this pulpit, I use the word we. I, I pray in the, the first person plural. And hopefully you're praying along with me. We're praying with one accord. We're praying together. Uh, so I would imagine something like that was happening here. The apostles were praying, but the people were praying along with them. They were united in one spirit. And what was their prayer like? As I say, that's the thing that interests me so much. Just like I want to know, what was their preaching like? Well, what was their praying like? It's very important to notice the beginning of the prayer or where they began as they prayed. For, for I fear that in this their prayer so often uh, differs from ours. When we pray, if you think about it and if you're honest, uh, we begin with the problem. We begin with the petition. Lord, I, I need you to help me. But that's not that's not the prayer that you find here, uh, nor really is it the prayer that you find almost ever in Scripture. This is a prayer that begins with praise. It is a prayer that begins with their their belief, their confidence in God. Indeed, by prayer, that was their first concern to express their confidence in God, to praise him by praying. So that's the first element of true prayer, praise. Or as, uh, or as we sometimes say, adoration. Adore the Father. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You see, that's what Jesus tells us to begin with. Praising the Father. Acknowledging him. Uh, adoring him for his holiness. And, and as we do so, we're not just praising him, but we are expressing in prayer. And I, and I hope it's clear why, why this is so important. Especially when the church is under fire. We're expressing our confidence in him. Our total confidence in him. We don't begin with ourselves. Nor do we begin with our enemies. We begin with God. We acknowledge him for who he is. Now I find it interesting to note. John Stott saying. That in this way. These men were preparing their hearts. They were acknowledging the lordship of God. They were reciting Psalm 2. Uh, and, and they were recounting what, what the Lord did uh, recently in verses 27 and 28. And then in verse 29, they begin to pr- pray. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants and, and so on. Well, I don't agree with that at all. They weren't preparing their hearts to prayer in verses, uh, let's see, verses 24 through 28 and only began to pray in verse 29. No, this is how they began their prayer. Their prayer begins, I say again, with praise. It, it, it begins with their, an expression of their confidence in God. And only out of this uh, do their petitions flow to the God whom they exalted and trusted in prayer. Do you see what they acknowledge about God? They begin like this. Lord, you are God. There is no other. You are the only creator, they say. You are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. Verse 24. In, a, in other words, they're saying you're the wise ruler of the world. We look upon these things and we're perplexed. We're distressed. We're afraid. But we understand as you look upon them, you see something very different. You see the unfolding of your own will. 
You see the world that you have made. You see uh, men and women who are totally subject to you. And I ask you, can a man pray like that? Can a man express his confidence in God like that? Can his mind be filled with thoughts of wonder and of God's majesty and not believe that he is a refuge for the distressed and that he will protect his people? Matthew Henry, now here he is speaking of preparing your mind. If, you, if you've read his book, A Way to Pray, uh, one of the first pages he says, before you pray, you've got to get yourself in a praying spirit. You've got to fill your thoughts with thoughts of God. Recognize the one whom you are addressing and then address him as such. Our Father who art in heaven. Or Lord, you are God, the maker of heaven and earth. And here, recognize in what they are saying to God. They had justified the authorities. Why had they done so? He says in chapter 5, we must obey God rather than men. In chapter 4, they say something similar. They say, we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. We've got to obey God. Well, here in their prayer, we discover why that was. These men were subject to God. Totally subject to God. You see, they weren't just a bunch of rebels who were looking for an excuse to rebel. Sometimes we Christians can act that way, but that wasn't it. This was the conviction of their heart expressed in prayer. Or let me put it another way. Let me try to turn the thought around and perhaps we can make better sense of it. There isn't a single man in the world who will be prepared to suffer for Christ who has not first formed this conviction in his heart in secret prayer. That God is the Lord and that he is the supreme ruler of the universe. You see, I'm saying this isn't just what we are expressing. This is what... Uh, in, in, in a kind of uh, root prayer, but this is an actual conviction that is formed in our hearts. A man who not only expresses God uh, to be the Lord, but one who has found him to be so in prayer. You see, the more that you pray, this is what you'll discover. As you're drawn into the presence of God, you'll see him for who he is. You'll have an, account, an encounter with the living God and you'll discover this about him. He is the Lord. And that's the conviction you need, especially as you face adversity and opposition. These are men who needed to be able to say, God, you are the Lord. The world is yours. All that is in it. You, you in Psalm 2, you look upon man. Uh, you all but laugh upon him. You hold him in derision. Lord, the, the world be belongs to you. And everything that man ever did was uh, simply the carrying out of your will. God, we serve you and not man. And yes, you are God. What is there to fear for a man who can honestly say that? God, Lord, you are God. Whose prayers are like that. Are you beginning to understand the secret of their boldness in public? It was their boldness in prayer in secret. So they express their confidence in God and they also express their confidence in the scriptures. We find that in verse 25 and verse 26, who by the mouth of your pro, uh, of your servant, David, have said, why did the nations rage and the people's plot vain things? The king, the kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. Really, this is something that goes hand in hand with the prior point. The man who is confident in God is a man who's confident in the scriptures, or we could put it the other way. The man who is confident in the scriptures is able to express his confidence in prayer, 
Even as they prayed. Do you see these are men of the word? The word of Christ was dwelling in them richly. We see that in their preaching over and over again. These were the very men, I, I keep saying, who wrote the New Testament. And yet uh, they were subject to the scriptures. They were preaching the scriptures ever. Do you realize that these men were just full of it? They were full of the word of God. It was dwelling in them richly. Are we surprised to see the same things in prayer? That as they prayed, they expressed the things that they knew and the things that they believed. They prayed the promises. And as they prayed, you remember Paul says, well, in the face of difficulties, we often don't know what to say because of weakness. But this much we can say. We, we can, we can uh, express the truth of Scripture in the midst of perplexity. Certainly part of man's confidence, part of man's confidence in God arises from the fact that he has spoken. And so may we not speak back to God the things that he has spoken. And do you realize, again, we're looking at these men. We're asking, how was it that they came to this position? A position of such incredible boldness and, and, and heroism. Well, part of it was their, their confidence in the scriptures. So that I would say, it is impossible, in fact, to startle or discourage a man who knows his Bible. There is nothing in the whole world that is so bad. That God has not told us to expect already. It's amazing also to notice how easily they prayed. A man who is full of the scriptures will find a certain ease in praying. He's familiar with the language of God, which is the language of prayer. He will find in the Bible uh, the matter of prayer already laid out before him. Look here at Psalm 2. Is Psalm 2 not a matter of prayer, especially for the church under fire? What they were saying, in essence, was this. Well, what David was saying and what they were repeating was that uh, the picture of mankind, in essence, is this. Mankind is united against the Lord. Mankind is raging about. And they found a terrible confirmation of this in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. It wasn't just... Uh, well, it wasn't just the rulers. It was, it was the kings, the rulers gathered together. It was the peoples, Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, and the people of Israel. All of mankind, it would seem, united in their stand against the Lord and his united. And when he fell into their hands, we know what happened. They crucified him. And now they were beginning uh, to go after their follower, his followers. In other words, man's wrath was not abated. It continued to abide against the Lord and his anointed and even his own, the church, as they treated me, so they will treat you, uh, Jesus said to his disciples. And here they were facing these very things, the malice of men, the malice even of rulers. And they were able to find comfort and consolation in the words of Scripture. And here was the great thing they discovered. Here's the great thing that we discover as we read Psalm 2. We see that the Lord looks upon them. He holds them in derision. But even beyond that, all that man does, he does in vain. The people's plot in vain. You see, man thinks he's doing something very great. He thinks he's uh, advancing in his cause. And the reality is, all he is doing is carrying out the very will of God that he opposes. Everything that is happening, they say, as they drew confidence from Psalm 2, everything is falling out, even as you said it would. Lord, verse 27, for truly against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever, not their hand, 
but to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Do you see how much this fills their hearts with confidence and praise to God, even as they prayed? Jesus, they say, is the Lord's anointed. And look what they did to him. And yet they were but doing whatever God's hand and his purpose determined before to be done, even as they had preached just a little while earlier. There's nothing man can do to the church that the church cannot say in response. Oh, Lord, you man is doing only whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. In other words, we see here, as I've been saying, that man is still raging. His malice is not exhausted. He still thinks that he's united against God and that in some sense he's succeeding. But uh, it's only the man who doesn't know the scriptures who could possibly be discouraged about this. Because you go all the way back in scripture and in history to Psalm 2 and you recognize the Lord has told us all the way back then that this was his will. One of the questions that we might ask is, why does God will that he should be opposed? You see, that's the thing that sometimes troubles us. We see the Lord saying, that man will oppose him. Man will do great harm to his prophets and even to his own son and then to all of their followers. We understand in a sense why man does that. It's man's heart uh, which is filled with animosity. But why is it the Lord's will? And, And how does it help us to see that? Well, the answer is, as I've said before, from our study of Exodus, is that uh, is that our God is a man of war. Doesn't it say that somewhere in the scripture? He's a man of war. In other words, he relishes the battle. He likes the battle. Most of all, he relishes the victory. But here's the amazing thing about the Lord. And we see it in a persecuted church. We see it in a crucified savior. We see it in the weakness of our daily uh, of, of our own daily weakness. And that is. That the Lord would appear weak at times in comparison to man, if only to be glorified in the overthrow of his enemies in apparent weakness. He loves to display his power in the weakness and the folly of, of, uh, of the gospel. And here's the thing that the church has got to see. Even as it seems the world is gaining ground, and surely it must have seemed that way to them in that moment. Uh, They had succeeded in putting to death their master, and now they were after them. The world was gaining ground. They appeared weak. Their enemies appeared strong. But these were men who knew God. And they were able to say and to glory in this fact, as as they later would preach, the weakness of God is stronger than man. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 25. And seeing that, In a sense, it poses a crucial test for the church, especially when she's under fire. And that is, and really this is always true. Can we trust him when his power is veiled? Can we trust him when he appears weak and our enemies appear strong? Are we able to place all of our trust in a crucified Savior? Are we able to hold on to him and believe that he rules the nation and even that he looks upon man and holds them in derision and declares that all that they do, all that they plot and all that they do is but a vain thing. When all of that is hidden to us, when all of that is veiled, when he appears weak and our enemies strong, what will your prayers look like then? 
Can you still pray like this? Can you still look upon a crucified Savior and see the glory and the power of God? Can you look at a, a, a spectacle and a display of weakness in the preaching or in the gathering of the saints or in these apostles here as the New Testament was being written and the early church was being formed? What do you see? Well, look next at the character of their petitions. We see that they begin with praise and they acknowledge that, uh, that the Lord rules in heaven and that everything that is happening is falling out according to his will. But only then having done that, not only are they praising God, but they're establishing their own hearts. They're quieting their hearts. As, as it said in Psalm, uh, in Psalm 42, in essence, why, why are you disquieted, O my heart? Hope in God. That's what they're doing. Do you notice what they don't do as they begin their petitions? They don't pray, Lord, make it stop. You see, they, they knew Psalm 2. They knew that wasn't going to happen. They knew that wasn't going to work. The Lord wasn't going to snap his fingers and say, the malice of men has ended. The reign of God has, become, has begun. And, uh, and now your troubles have come to an end. That day is coming, but not until Christ returns. They, knowing scripture very well and knowing the will of God insofar as he had spoken it through the prophets, they knew very well that the church under fire was the will of God and that they were meant to face that with faith, faith and boldness and with perseverance. And so they don't say, Lord, make it stop. Isn't that what we often say? They say simply, Lord, look on their threats. Lord, notice them. Take notice and do with them what you will. Look upon them from the heavens, even as you said they would, or that even as you said you would. You said that you would look upon them. You said that you would behold what they plotted and regarded as a vain thing. You said that you would hold them in derision. Well, Lord, we only ask you to do what you said you would do, and that in your own way you would frustrate their plans utterly. We do not ask or expect their immediate overthrow. But this we will ask, Father. Grant your servants, they say, in verse 29, that with all boldness they may, uh, they may speak your word. They prayed for power to preach. They prayed for boldness to face uh, even the worst things their enemy had for them. To go on with the preaching, though opposed. That's what they prayed for. You see, in many ways, uh, they were just like us. They didn't have any idea what was coming. They could begin to try to imagine. Uh, but in a sense, they must have been surprised. They were just released. And so uh, who was to say how much or how soon they would suffer? They didn't know. Neither do we. And yet what they do say is, well, Lord, we're aware of this. We are aware of the malice of men. We see how much they hate your anointed. We see how much they hate you. We see how much they hate your servants, how much they hate the preaching of the gospel. All that we ask, Lord, is that we would have the courage to face them and that we would have the courage to go on with this task. Grant unto us, Holy Father, boldness, even as you look on their threats from heaven and declare the vanity of what they plot. Let us admit, each of us, that we are untested. Basically, none of us have ever faced in our lives real persecution. We, we've certainly experienced the malice and the ridicule of the world. We've experienced certain pressures. But we've never been persecuted like this. We're untested. Do any of us, or would any of us, claim that with the threat of persecution that we would stand? You know, Peter did that. 
And Peter failed utterly and miserably, thinking that he could. Do you know what was wrong with Peter? Peter thought that he could stand on his own two feet before this point. Peter was a man who overestimated his own strength. I think, well, I think that I could be like that. I think that there are a lot of men like that in the church today. They're overestimating their own, their own courage, their own strength. They say, you know, I, I, would, I would never bow the knee to such pressures. I would never fold under such pressure. But, you know, that's the lesson of Peter. It's easy to say that until you're tested, until you're put to the fire. But do you realize what made the difference? You see, Peter's folly earlier on was that he overestimated his own strength. And give him credit at least for that. He said, Lord, I'll go with you to the end. And then the Lord saw to it that he would discover his own weakness. And what he learned coming out on the other side of that was the value of prayer. You see, there's no telling uh, what kind of pressures we would face. And the reality is it probably would take very little for each of us to cave. And yet it's amazing to see with the very same man who had lately discovered his weakness, what was true of him once he learned what it was to pray. And don't we see here then what we should be praying for? Because we don't know what we're going to face. We don't know what kinds of pressures will be placed on the church or upon its preachers. We need to say, Lord, we understand our weakness. We understand that we're not as strong as we think we are. We understand that the world, in essence, is allied against us. And seemingly the world is growing in its strength. Who is to say what they might do to us? Oh God, we pray merely that you might grant to us the, the boldness by which we might stand fast. You see, if we would but pray that, then we might be like Peter on the other side. We might know what he has or what he had. You see, if God should answer this prayer as he did in the case of Peter's, then it will be ours. The very thing we, we seek. A boldness to face the fiercest God-hater there ever was. And I wonder. I wondered about myself. I wondered about all of you. Is that what we really want? Are we praying that God would give us such boldness? Or are we still praying, Lord, we pray that you would give us an easy life. And that we would never face any trials or any difficulties. That the church will never really be tested in this life. Or have we gotten so accustomed to ease that we've forgotten to pray like this? Are we seeking this from God even now? Grant, Holy Father. Oh, now, Lord, they say, look on their threats. Grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. That's, well, that's, that's a prayer worth praying for yourself. It's a prayer worth praying uh, for, for, for the preachers of our presbytery and throughout the land. A prayer for boldness, whatever may come beyond that verse 30, by signs and wonders, they say, or, or by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through your name, through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And here I confess, we can't quite pray like this. We really shouldn't. And we can't. Not entirely, because we know that it has not been granted to us as it was granted to these men to perform signs and wonders in the name of Jesus. That was something that Jesus expressly promised to them. It is not something uh, either that they expressly promised to others or that Christ ever expressed to us. Nor was it given to us to, to, to write the words of the New Testament canon. Well, I would say they were entitled to pray these things while we are not. However, are we not still entitled to pray in the same manner? 
to ask God in essence in granting boldness unto his servants to put a seal upon his work. You see, that's really what they were asking. Confirm, uh, confirm the message that we preach. Demonstrate, O oh Lord, visibly your power to save. Well, what am I talking about? I'm not talking about signs and wonders. I'm not talking about miracles. What I'm talking about is the way in which God's power and, and his grace becomes apparent in the life of the church and even the life of the individual. That there is a kind of power that is evident when the word is truly being preached in a spiritual fashion. When the Lord is with the preacher and he's with the church and he's with the sinner and converting him and drawing him onto, drawing him onto himself. The thing that well, the church becomes conscious of and even the world to a certain extent is the power of the kingdom of God. And that's the kind of thing uh, that that these men were asking for. Let it become apparent. Let it become visible. Let it become well known. This isn't just an idle tale that we believe. This is the very re reality of the power of God to say to save. And so when this sort of thing happens, let me say, well, it isn't always quiet. You know, the kingdom of God can proceed in a very quiet, silent, uh, uh, undiscernible way. But at other times it comes in this powerful way. Sometimes, indeed, it can cause quite a stir. Uh, let, let me go on, on on this to my next point, and that is the prayer is answered in verses 31 and 32. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with all boldness. We find tokens of power first. The place was shaken. And that's what I'm talking about here. I, I, I'm not saying that uh, the building will be shaken in our case. But I do believe that when God answers a prayer like this, things are going to start happening. God will shake things up. His own sovereignty and power will become evident. Like Edwards, we will begin to speak of our own narrative of surprising conversions and the power that attended them. Of course, I'm speaking of revival. We also see this. And we might expect this just as they did. And that is they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Here, once again, was their secret. There is no natural explanation for what these men did. But as they were filled with the Spirit, so they did things that amaze us, even to this day. But do you realize, as we read of this, about their prayers, that the same things might be true of us. That we might cry out to God in prayer as the church under fire and find him answering uh, in, in just the same way. In other words, I'm saying it, the same spirit is available to the church today. The same spirit is available to, well, to every believer as individuals. Do you remember what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 18? He says, be filled with the spirit. And that is a command that abides every day with the church. It is always the duty of the Christian to seek to be full of the spirit. To seek it especially in prayer, the fullness of the spirit. We recognize already, just two chapters later, that Pentecost has passed. But the amazing thing, and, and, and let me also say, we're not trying to recreate Pentecost. But the amazing thing to see is just, I, I don't know, a few days later, in the wake of Pentecost, they were continuing to experience in a new and a fresh way the fullness of the Spirit. Pentecost has passed for them. Pentecost has passed for us. And yet, in the days that have passed, we might... We might be full of the spirit. We might be filled with the spirit. 
And so again, I ask you, is that something that you want? Is that something that you're praying for? Do you want to be an individual believer who is full of the Spirit? Do you want to sit under preaching of men who are full of the Spirit? Do you want to be in a church that's full of the Spirit? Are you praying for that? Again, not, Lord, uh, just make it stop, make our lives easy, please, Lord. But, Lord, grant unto your church boldness. Visit us with power from on high. Fill us with your Spirit. Not only are you praying for that, but let me ask you a second question. Is that your experience? Do you know anything about this at all? Have you experienced in your own life the power of the Holy Spirit, the fullness of the Spirit? Do you know what it is for God to answer this prayer? And having done so, if you have, uh, well, then you will know many of the truths that Paul has been expressing in Romans chapter 8. Something of the testimony and the witness of the Spirit. What it is to cry out of a Father. You will uh, understand what it is to be filled with boldness and conviction. You'll know what it's like to be able to lay hold of God in prayer. You will find uh, even the power of God in the weakness of preaching. You'll delight in it, however weak it comes to you. Have you ever been full of the Spirit? But the last thing we see is that the Word of God was... Uh, what, they spoke the word of God with boldness. The room they were in was shaken. Later on, we see signs and wonders. But really, the great thing is these two things. Filled with the Spirit, spoke the word with boldness. And that was all they were seeking from God, and that's what they found. And that's the testimony of, of the preachers God has used through the ages to turn the world upside down. He filled these men with, their spirit, with his spirit, and they were enabled as a result of this to preach the word. That's what he did with Luther and Calvin. That's what he did with Edwards and Whitfield uh, and so many others. What was the secret to their preaching and their amazing success and even their ability to defy the authorities? And in the cases of some, not any of the men I, I reference, but many others, in the case of the martyr, martyrs dying for their faith, certainly we can say that of the apostles. It's that they were full of the Spirit. And as they were full of the Spirit, they not only preached the Word, but they did so with boldness. That's the amazing thing. They didn't... Uh, they, they didn't preach in such a way that the human weakness was the only thing you saw. Yes, you saw it. There's no way for a man, a weak man, a sinner to preach and, and his weakness not be apparent. But something else was apparent. And it was the boldness which they had from God. Even that boldness which they sought from God. Full of the Spirit, they preached the word of God with boldness. And that is what you will find Whenever the Spirit comes upon the church, fresh power to preach. Again, I ask you, is that the thing you want from God? Is that the thing you want more than anything else? To have this encounter of him, however long we must suffer, however long we must live in this world, and whatever we may face, Lord, we pray unto you that you might grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word, and so they will. And so then here is a model for the church today especially the church under fire. Let us, as long as we read this book, let us find in it a model for the church in every age. And you ask, what's the church to do when she faces opposition? What's the church to do when she's under fire? What's the church to do when she doesn't know what might happen? All of these things are true of us today. And the two answers of Acts chapter 4, verses 23 through 31, is she's to gather and she's to pray. Amen. And let us return now our praise to God by standing together and singing hymn 486. Hymn